Good morning, everybody. You'll be pleased to know I'm slowly getting over my debilitating fear of public speaking. I think I'd mentioned this one of the other times I had the blessing of speaking up here. I was looking it up, and the top three fears of people is public speaking is number one, burned to death is number two, and being eaten by a shark was number three. Isn't it interesting that public speaking was number one? One can infer you'd rather be burnt alive than get up in front of your friends and speak. I don't know why it's so terrifying, but you all have really friendly faces, so it's making it easier. If you don't mind, we'll start with another word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much, not only just for giving us the Sabbath, a special time built for our relationship, but thank you that we enjoy the freedom to meet and to worship you. Thank you for our wonderful church family. Thank you for the love we share for each other and with, for you. We pray for a special blessing on the spiritual meal we're here to eat. Give us the strength and the wisdom to metabolize it and make it part of who we are. And I pray desperately that people don't see me, but they see you. I'm just a rusty old bent nail, and I want them to see a picture of you hanging from that nail. Please bless us, open our minds, and feed us this morning. We pray in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. So, just like the other times I've had the blessing of being up here, I had difficulty choosing a topic, and then beyond that, it was very difficulty staying with that topic, because as for those of you who are in my class, you know that every little issue, you can really, really talk about it, you can really open it up, and I love it, and I, I can get carried away, and for, then we end up 20 miles from what we were talking about, we go down the different paths, and it's, when you love the subject matter, I think it's very difficult to stay, to stay on task, because scriptures woven together is such a beautiful tapestry you're like what thread do i follow so i was struggling with that and then the thought occurred to me after i had a moment of quiet reflection i was this is after the election was finalized and we were all kind of you know settling down from that and kind of trying to hope for a new normalcy both from the aftermath of the election and by that i mean the difficulties our nation was having with that and then, you know, we're still dealing, dealing with COVID. And I was kind of discouraged. And in my private reflection with God, I was saying, you know, God, I think I'd really like to tap out now. <laughs> I feel really spent. I don't really feel like I have much left to give. And I'm very exhausted with how difficult and uh, kind of hostile the world has been around me. And I, I've, I, of course, I wasn't saying like Elijah was, like, just take my life. That's not what I was saying. I was just discouraged and I was reflecting. And the thought came to me very, very clearly and very, very, very clear impression from God. He's like, what are you talking about? He's like, you still have work to do. You can't sit on the bench now. And it, it re, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? It um, refocused what the purpose was. And I thought, you know, what a, what a blessing it is that now I can take that message and give it to you. So what I want to do this morning is just remind us of our great purpose. And if you remember a few weeks ago when I spoke to you, I talked about your purpose as an individual. Do you guys remember that? Remember the language, uh, God, so God created man in his image. The language there was God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit speaking that language of love and saying, let's make man. Let's make man in our image. Let's start a family. So we remember our personal function, our personal uh, calling. But uh, this morning I want to talk to you about our collective calling as a church. For those of you who don't, who don't know me, I've been a member of Seventh-day Adventist Church since I was born. You can say I was, uh, I, was, I was born into it, but when I became a young adult, I, I made the decision for myself. And uh, a couple years ago, my wife and I, we moved to Naples, and uh, I've been at this church oh, a few years now, and I have the honor of leading out in one of our Sabbath school classes, and I absolutely love doing it. I love giving Bible studies. If you guys don't know we have a Sabbath school going because of COVID, you, you're not aware of it? No, we do. At 9.30 every Sabbath morning, we're out, we're out over there, and I love that. I love the small groups. I love Bible studies. So if you guys want to join us, that would be great, but just telling you a little bit about myself before we get into it. I also found a new white hair in my beard this week. That's new. <laughs> I, feel, I feel as though I'm getting older, but people say, you're so young, and I f found out what the problem was. I identify as a, in my early 20s, I feel like I got stuck there, and I'm almost 40, so when things happen with my body, like a new white hair, my back's hurting, I'm like, what's going on? It's genuinely a surprise to me. <laughs> I forget I'm almost 40, <laughs> so now you, now you know me a little bit better. So 
the other morning, like I was telling you, I was feeling a bit discouraged. And I heard a story that kind of uh, bears that out. A good way of teaching is giving you a comparison or an analog, they'd call it. I heard a story about a soldier in World War II. He was an English soldier. He was stationed in France. I'm sorry, World War I. And he was very, very discouraged. Um, the history of World War I, you could see easily why he was discouraged. They're entrenched in these mud trenches. Um, that's where the term shell shock came from because both sides were entrenched in trenches, you know, six, eight, ten feet deep in mud and artillery going back and forth, going back and forth. And this, this continued for quite some time. It was very discouraging. We lost uh, so, many, so many men. Over four million men died within the first couple years of that war. And it, there was really no progress being made. So he was very discouraged. He was sitting there in the mud, very, very discouraged. This had been going on for quite some time. So finally he got in his head, I'm going to get out of here. I can't take this anymore. I don't care anymore. You know, he was completely, completely discouraged. So one night he snuck out. It took him a very long time, being very, very careful. He snuck out. He snuck out of the trenches. He crawled through the mud for miles and miles and miles, carefully not to be seen, until he came to a field and he could stand up and he's not in the mud anymore. And he ran and he ran and he ran and he ran until he came to a road. Then he followed the road and he ran and he ran and he ran until there was an intersection. And he said, I have no idea where I am but I'm miles and miles and miles from the front line now, so it's probably safe for me to uh, light my lighter and see what the sign says. And he couldn't see the sign. He was, it was too low. So he, through great effort, <laughs> he's still covered in mud, he climbs the street pole to get up to the street signs to see, where am I? And this is in France. And he pulls out his lighter, he lights it, and he looks. And it wasn't a street sign at all. It was a statue of Jesus Christ hanging from the cross. So there he stands, inches from the face of Christ, and in that moment, he was absolutely convicted. He's like, it kind of put things in perspective for him. And in a very, very, very small way, that happened to me And the story I was telling you about feeling very discouraged because all of a sudden it put things in context. Does that make sense? Sometimes we lose track of why we're doing something or what we're doing and why. So it's very helpful to get reminders of that. And praise God, he knows who we are and how we are and he knows how to talk to us. You ever notice in Scripture how many things are repeated? Often. All throughout Scripture. It's because God knows humans. He knows we forget. And we need to be reminded constantly. So our great calling, and I want to talk to you this morning about our, our religion. And let me take a brief moment to say I'm going to be more sensitive to the time. I got some feedback last time I spoke. One friend told me, you need to move more. This is me moving more. And he said, you went too long. <laughs> I don't know how long I went, but again, when you love the subject matter, you tend to just dive into it. But let's talk this morning about our faith, our religion, and I'm going to speak based on the fact that I'm assuming I'm speaking to people who are pretty grounded in our faith. You've been a member of a church or our church for a while. So that's what I'm talking about. So why, why are we a church? All that buildup is coming to this. Why are we a church? Why are we a religion? Why are we here? Here. Why are you here? Why are you here this morning? Now, that can be a personal question, but it can be rhetorical as well. Maybe you know where I'm going with this. Let's, let's back up. Let's step outside of ourselves real quick. Pretend with, with me for a moment that you don't go to church. You don't belong to an organized religion. You're not religious. You're not spiritual. Standing from the outside looking in, what do you suppose you'd think of us gathered here this morning? What do you think? What are they doing there and why? Probably a pretty easy question. You're like, well, duh, they're like-minded people. They're gathering together to socialize and... Okay, that makes sense. That makes sense. I read an article a while back where this institute, I forget the name of it, they polled several thousand Christians throughout the United States, and they said, why do you go to church? And the answer might surprise you, and I'll save that for a moment to keep you on the hook. But why, why are we here? Karl Marx, the father of communism, do you know what he said about religion? You guys know that quote? He said it was the opium of the masses. Of course, Karl Marx was an atheist and he hated God. You know, you can be an atheist without hating God, but he was, he was both. But he said religion was the opium of the masses. Do you guys know what he meant by that? Any idea at all? So see or here he sees people belonging to religion, showing up in droves every week, every weekend to their church, and then going back out into the world and not being really any different than the world at all. So 
being a thinker as he was, he's thinking, why are they doing this? They're just, they're receiving something from it. And of course, when he said it, it was meant as a jab. He was, he was being unkind. But there is some, some truth to that. Why are we here? So those Christians they polled, 89 and some odd percent of the thousands of Christians they polled said the church exists to take care of my spiritual needs and the needs of my family. Does that sound about right? Are we, are we making more sense now? Are we closing in on the purpose of our faith, the purpose of our religion? Do you guys think, by a show of hands, who, who agrees with that? Okay, okay, some of you, good, good. We're getting somewhere. We're seeing eye to eye. So that kind of flies in the face of what Karl Marx said. And I often come back to his quote because it's very poignant. And it's kind of helps me make the point I want to make this morning. And we'll, make, we'll build that point as I go along. Let's back up and try and get the context from Scripture now. We've tried to th- put ourselves in other people's shoes and think what they think of, our, of religion, of our faith, of our church. We've heard what some of the great thinkers of the past have said. Let's see through Scripture what our church is for, what our faith is for, why we are here. Now, I don't have the time to delineate it like I would like to, but I love, I love Scripture, I love the Old Testament, and I love history, and I love storytelling. So I could take us on a four-hour-long journey, but I'm not going to do that to you guys. What I'm going to do is summarize and move along, uh, assuming that you guys understand some of these Old Testament stories, and we'll build on that. So in the, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and then he created us, humans, We were originally created in the image of God, but then we decided to disobey. We were offered an alternative to following God. And that alternative in the moment sounded a lot more attractive. Satan said, you can be as gods. Who doesn't want to get out from underneath a thumb of an authority figure and do what you want to do? Sounded really attractive, right? So our first parents, Adam and Eve, they sinned. They made a mistake. They immediately regretted their mistake they repented, and God met them where they're at. And it's such a beautiful story. I could build hours on this alone. But he met them where they're at, and he said, I forgive you, and let me explain to you the system of redemption, how I'm going to make your mistake whole, how I'm going to make up for that. Let me explain that to you. And so he introduced them the sacrificial system, which is a living representation of the gospel, Right? And it's, it's a beautiful, beautiful story. And sometimes it can seem a bit foreign to us in this day and age in our culture. It seems a bit foreign. But when you put it under a microscope, you see the beauty and the symmetry of God trying to show us through the system of sacrifice what he's doing for us. And it's absolutely beautiful. Despite their failings, though, they finally chose, they intelligently chose to follow God. So according to Scripture, Adam and Eve, although they fell, they are considered righteous. They, they will be in the kingdom. But because they had already failed, sin had entered the world, all of a sudden, all of our compasses were now broken. They all pointed inward rather than outward like it was supposed to. So this is where our story starts. And so this is where we first see the body of God created. And by that, I mean the body of believers. Now, Adam and Eve were making the intelligent choice. And by intelligent, what I mean is they had to, they had to choose. It went to intellectual. I'm going to choose to follow God because I've given, I've given the other side a try. Does that make sense? So they weren't doing it just because that's what they've always done or that's what they were told to do. They're like, I'm choosing this for myself. So they became people of God. Someday I want my brain to be good enough where I don't need these notes. I think that would be great. So ever since then, Adam and Eve made that choice. God has had a people that have been his, that have been dedicated to him. They've made the, the, they've made the choice on their own to serve God and to do what God would like them to do, do what God designed them to do. But then there have always been people who have not. But you guys know that old ad- adage, the only thing necessary for evil to triumph is for what? Good men to do nothing. So Adam and Eve had to do something, right? So to stay back the tide of evil, they had to be very active in trying to spread the truth of God, the love of God. They, they, so they, they did something. They did everything. But despite their best efforts, evil almost completely engulfed the world until only righteous Noah and his family remained. You guys following me so far? Are you familiar with these stories? The world had gotten so violent and evil that our loving God was forced to destroy it by a flood. Now again, I could build an entire sermon about this, the love of God and the flood. I have a friend who once said, um, 
Oh, except for, you know, when God threw that temper tantrum in the Old Testament and wiped everybody out. And that's the typical view people have of that. But it was out of love more than anything else. If you have evil and violence overspreading the world, and it's going to completely engulf the world if you don't put a stop to it, that's definitely love, putting a stop to it. And again, I could build on that for quite a while, but I have to move on for the sake of this, unless you guys don't want to go home till about 4 o'clock. <laughs> and after the flood, so there's eight people now. There's righteous Noah. God spoke to Noah uh, directly. They were very close. But even after the flood, it was very apparent that there was already a split again in that small population. Right, Noah's righteousness wasn't uh, something shared by all of his sons, just some of them. So here we see uh, the righteous line then splitting again off from the unrighteous line. And then the Bible brings us to the next story, which is Abraham, which was from Noah's righteous line of his righteous sons who have chosen to obey God. And then God took Abraham to himself and said, you're going to be my special people. And through you, I'm going to bless the world. Right? Again, you're familiar with these stories. Because he wasn't just talking about that the Christ would be born out of Abraham's genealogy, which he was. He was also talking about, you're going to be a blessing to the world. You're going to be a blessing to the small nations around you. Abraham was an example of righteousness to everyone around him. He was God's church, him and his family. You know, Abraham and his small little kingdom there, there was over a thousand people in Abraham's tribe, you could say, and his household. That was a small little nation of believers being a blessing to the world around them. So he was living out God's plan for him. The larger part of the Old Testament then details Abraham's seed, then growing into a mighty nation. You guys are familiar with these stories as well. And God was all the way trying to bring them to a point where they could do what he originally had wanted for humans, which was just to be a blessing, right? So we have the, the powers of darkness and the powers of light kind of fighting for mastery over the world, and God's kingdom is supposed to be spreading light. And had they followed their plan, light would have spread around the world. It would have completely spread around the world. Everyone would have known what God is really about, what his character is, what his law is. And to know God is to love God. So it makes sense the light could have spread around the world. But Scripture faithfully uh, tells the story that God's people had lots of ups and downs. There was one part in the nation of Israel where they were really meeting the high standard God had called them to. And that was towards the beginning of Solomon's reign. The scripture talks about just how, how much influence they had, and people were pouring in from the nations around them saying, what do you have that we don't have? We are racked with so many problems. You guys don't have those problems. What is your secret? And so they were diffusing that light of God to the people around them. So they were really living up to their function, their duty, I guess you could say. But so often, they would just lose sight of what that was for. And then those gifts of God, the gifts God gave them, they would just turn inward they thought that God's blessings were to be hoarded and kept only to themselves, so much so that they looked upon the cultures around them as no better than animals. So here we come to the time of Christ, where their religion, their faith, again, we're talking about religions and faith, church this morning, their religion and faith had become so inclusive as to disqualify everybody else. So if we read in the Gospels about the life of Christ, you can see that really coming through and the attitude and the actions and the words of the religious leaders at the time. You guys are still following me, right? You can vividly see this. I'd love to be able to read all this to you, but I'd get hoarse. I'd be doing it so long because it's a long story. So here's an example of, in Christ's time, how they didn't get what their purpose was. They would actually hire non-Jews to do work for them on God's holy Sabbath because they're, like, they're already lost. What does it matter? Does that, you can see how kind of twisted that had gotten, you know? And they wouldn't, they wouldn't even want to come in contact with the small nations around them for a risk of contamination. They're like, oh, uh, no, because then I'd have to, you know, I'd have to go get, I'd have to go get washed and blessed, you know, by the priest or the Levites or whatever and all this stuff. So like, I just, let me stay away. And that's very brought out in the story of the Good Samaritan. You know, remember that? The Levi walked by, the priest walked by, and they're both like, oh, that's going to be too much work. Plus, I can't even tell if he's in Israel light or not, so it doesn't really matter. So this is the environment that Jesus was born into. Turn with me to Matthew 23, 13. You can do it in your Bible or on your phone, whatever. I love the sound of pages being turned, though. I still like to actually read books myself. 
people tease me, you know, you can fit 10,000 of those on your Kindle, right? Because <laughs> I have a big bookshelf. It's like, I don't care. I, lo- I love actual books. I suspect that's going to be dying away within the next couple generations. But I'll cling to it until the end. Okay, Matthew 23, 13. So this is Jesus speaking. And this is bearing out what I'm trying to tell you right here. But he said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! For you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. For you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow others who are entering in to go. Isn't that something? So they're actually preventing the salvation of other people. They've become so selfish and so inclusive that they had no desire and no love for anyone else to see them saved. And they wouldn't even let, the, they wouldn't even let them be saved. I, I can't get over that. So this is what Christ was up against. And you can see why he really had his work cut out for him, trying to change the spirit of that age. Now, this is, bear in mind, this is not at all a Jewish problem. This is a human problem, right? And I think it's funny when people try and break us down into different cultures or races or whatever, like we're all so different. It's like, no, we're all humans. We all are exactly the same. And you know what's interesting? You read scripture, you read what people are saying, doing, and how they were being back in Christ's day some 2,000 odd years ago. They were behaving exactly the same as they are right now. The only difference now is we have smartphones. That's really the only difference. So if you think people are getting better, read some history. We as people, we often don't get it. And even if we do, we choose not to participate in God's plan to save men, thus depriving men of a knowledge of God. And again, I'm bearing it out that, again, it's not a Jewish problem. It's a people problem. We're all, we are all the same. We are all the same. We have the same challenges. We have the same temptations. We have the same inclinations. And so here we are. Here are we're reading about these individuals. But again, we should, we should be able to relate. So at this point, Abraham's dependents, I'm sorry, descendants had fallen so far from God, he could no longer count on them to help in the saving of a perishing world. So that religion... That church, so to speak, had failed of their duty. It had turned into something completely it was never intended to be, and it was completely defective. I think I can use that word correctly, right? If the system of worship was meant to honor God and to be a blessing to the world around them, but they had, they had cl- closed it in these high walls and made it so inclusive and used it as an excuse to have prejudice and hatred, would you call that defective? Right? There might be a better word, but I'm going to go with defective. So, what could God do? It was, the time was ripe to send in his son. His son needed to come. And when Jesus came in, he was going to usher in a new era. He would wipe away all the corruption that had been heaped upon his religion and show what it meant to serve God out of love and to show us what service looks like. Would you guys agree? So what did Christ say? I'm going to throw you a curveball here. What did Christ say? Now turn with me to Ezekiel 33. Uh, You thought I was going to go New Testament when I said Christ, didn't you? There we go. Ezekiel 33, we're going to read verse 11. Ezekiel 33, 11. Bear in mind, Ezekiel is in the Old Testament. Say to them, as I live, says the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. Why should you die, O house of Israel? Do you see the pleading that Christ is doing? He's saying, I don't want to come to condemn you. That's not, that's not the point. He's like, I want you to turn. I, I want to save you. Do you see that love language in there? And we could bring out so much of that same language and that same message in all parts of Scripture to really build on that. But take my word for it. That is the voice of Christ throughout the entirety of the Bible. Why won't you turn? Why would you die? Why would you want to be lost? And I love that language. And Christ himself, when he was here on earth, he said, I came not to condemn the world, but to save the world, right? It's about, it's about the people. It's absolutely about the people. There is condemnation if we choose to not follow God, but That's only if we choose not to. He's saying, please, please choose. Please choose to follow me.
And so, the, again, here's, here's another verse. I won't make you look this one up. Matthew 4, 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Do you hear more of that language in there? He's like, I just want you to repent. I want you to turn from your wicked ways. Why would you die? Why would you choose selfishness and self-serving? I know your compass is broken, but I'm here to help you fix that compass. I want you to be a blessing to the world around you. People are in pain. They're perishing. They're dying all around you. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Interesting note. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. A lot of people don't understand that. His disciples didn't understand that. They thought that meant he was going to usher in a new era of a kingdom here on earth. They thought he was going to vanquish the Romans. They were going to become a great nation again. That's what they thought the kingdom of God was. That's not true. The kingdom of God is in here. He was ushering in a new era. He was, he was offering them to be a member of his kingdom in here. And that is for all of us here again today, I guess, especially in, by way of encouragement. Because ev at every hand we see all around the world, but then, you know, zoom in a little bit more. In our culture, in our country, we have so many problems. We're so divided, right? Does that feel overwhelming to you guys at times? You guys feel like I do where I was kind of like, oh, it feels so, you know, uh, hostile and toxic at times. But the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We don't, this isn't our kingdom. It's not. If you're Christ, this is not your kingdom. You're just a sojourner here. You're just a nomad, just like Abraham. He, he never built a permanent shelter. You guys know that? He wandered around. Scripture says that he was waiting for God's kingdom, and then he built he build a proper house out of stone. He was like, this isn't even mine. God has promised it to me, but he knew what God's promise meant. It meant when God makes the earth anew, this will be your spot. And he knew that. That's why he was a nomad. He stayed in a tent. And I love that. I think that's a good lesson for us now. But if we remind ourselves the context that God puts us in, this isn't our kingdom. Can I get an amen? Thank you. I am making sense after all. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is God's message to the world. He's asking us to please choose righteousness, to choose what is right, to love your neighbor. And if we love our neighbor... Are we content to watch them lose eternity? Now let that sink in for just a minute because we love people and I think sometimes we love the idea of people but then actually to come in contact with real people can be very difficult. Um, or is that just me? So, but if we love people, we want their best good, right? And that doesn't just mean for this life because this life was simply given to us as an opportunity to develop our characters. To, ch to choose what kind of people we want to be. So we do want what's best for them in this life, but how much more so eternity? Am I right? So if we love people, how can we be content to see them lost? So we're starting to see what God's religion means. It means loving people and wanting their best good. God's religion is about the people. It's about saving people. Sometimes we get frustrated and we can be kind of harsh towards people. When Christ was on his way to Jerusalem, actually for the last time, he was going to pass through Samaria and he sent his uh, disciples ahead of him to ask for lodging for the night. They returned with a message, since you're going to Jerusalem, they don't want you to stay here. You're clearly showing preference to Jerusalem and the Jews. They're, you're not welcome here. And a couple of the disciples asked, Lord, should we call down fire from heaven to destroy them for their insolence, for the rudeness they've offered you? And Christ was very pained by that. He said, and I'm not quoting him verbatim, but he said, how could you think that? I didn't come to destroy the world. I came to save the world. So them being human, just like we're human, we often make a mistake. Sometimes we can get exercised or passionate in the wrong direction. Uh, let me bear that point out. Imagine for a moment with me that you were able to be transported through space and time to be standing a few yards from where Jesus was when they were getting ready to lay the cross on him. And he's so faint from blood loss and lack of sleep and lack of food. He can't even bear the weight of this thing, which isn't surprising. I'm sure it was very heavy. So imagine you're standing in the crowd watching and you're standing amidst your brother and humans, other people just like you who are throwing nothing but jeers and reviling at him and spitting at him and throwing stones at him and just hating them from a satanic frenzy that Satan was inspiring because he hates Christ so much. So if you were standing there watching this go on, what would have been your thoughts? They may have been your thoughts just like the disciples. That would be my first thought is, how could you? I would be f 
furious because I love Christ and I see what he's doing and how he's doing it for you. He's like, how could you treat him like this? But then Christ would remind me, settle down. It's about the people. These people that you're really angry with right now, I want to save them. And I still can. Let me go through this. Because some of these very, very people in this crowd right now who are crying, crucify him, crucify him, give us Barabbas. Don't release Jesus the righteous. We want Barabbas. You know how poetic that was that they were saying that? They were choosing their God. We want Barabbas. But so these people, they were jeering Christ. They were saying, crucify him. But Christ, Christ is saying, no, some of these people will make the choice for me. They just need more time. So again, if you're in that situation, you can see why that's upsetting. But Christ is reminding us it's about the people. That was Christ's religion. It's about the people. It's about saving the people. I came not into the world to condemn the world. I came to save the world. Amen? We need to be reminded of that. But Christ couldn't stay here forever. He had to pay the price for our sins as well. As well as showing us what God the Father was like, as well as showing us how we should be. He also had another mission, which was to pay the price for our sins. So he couldn't stay here forever. So he set about creating his new church. And by new church, I mean, we already talked about the the nation of Israel as a whole had failed their calling. They were a defective system of worship. So he needed to create something new, but still with the same object in mind. So he set about creating his new church so that after he was gone, the work of saving souls could continue and grow and grow because if he was here limited limited as he was to being a human, he couldn't be everywhere at once. So it was actually good for the world that he was training a new church and he was going to leave so we, they could spread around the world themselves. Here's a very reassuring and encouraging text. Turn with me to Matthew 28. We're going to read 18 through 20. For those of you who don't know, Matthew's in the New Testament. Oh, this one wasn't a curveball. 20, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. This should seem very, very familiar with, to you guys. So let me set the scene for you. Christ had risen from the dead. He had ascended to the Father. He had made sure his sacrifice was accepted. And he had returned to earth to comfort and reassure his disciples and give them some more instruction for a limited time. Matthew 20, 18, And Jesus came and spoke to them. He says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Can I get an amen for that? I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I love that. I love that text. But here, Christ is reminding them of what their mission is, what their purpose is, what's the point of their religion, what's the point of their faith. Why are they there? You guys starting to see the picture? All authority has been given to me. So Christ had already ascended to the Father. His sacrifice was accepted. And God handed back to him that authority he had laid down to become a human. That's a beautiful thing. And with that authority and with that power, he blesses his church to be a blessing. Make disciples of all nations. Nobody is excluded. I love that. We live in a time in our culture where we feel very divided. It's very easy to divide us over any little thing, uh, sports team, culture, gender, whatever. It doesn't matter. It's in our selfish human nature to want to be divided for some reason. But God says, go make, nation, go make disciples of all nations. God doesn't see color or creed or income or gender. It doesn't matter. None of those human distinctions matter to God. He wants every single person to be saved. And that means meeting people where they are and being a blessing to them, just like Christ did. This is the religion of our loving creator. Give God our best and our first and uplift everybody else. Be invested in everybody else as God is. And if we need more clarification, what did Christ's body do while he was on earth? He went around being a blessing, trying to save people, right? So what does his body do now? Did you know that we are the body of Christ? You see it tying together? Are we forming a picture now? Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 12, 27. That's 
towards the end of your Bible. 1 Corinthians 12, 27. I'm used to having people in my class read these. It's weird to not have you read. I guess it'll just be me. Now you are the body of Christ and members individually. Moving on to verse 28. And God has appointed these in the church. First apostles, second prophets, third teachers, after that miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, administrations, varieties of tongues. And it goes on and on. So it makes it clear right off the bat that we don't have all the same gifts. Would you guys agree with that? I don't think public speaking is necessarily my gift. It was just kind of, kind of evolved out of necessity. I think my, my gift, and I can't account for it, is teaching, because I, I love teaching. I love teaching the Bible. That's my favorite subject, but I love teaching other things as well. The reason I'm saying these things and reminding you is I think a lot of us fail to meet our high calling because we don't think that we are able or worthy. So you, you might be thinking in your heads, wow, Jonathan, he, he's up there talking and preaching. I could never do that. Well, bear in mind, a few minutes ago, neither did I. <laughs> you don't know what you're capable of. <laughs> never feel less than. I covered that a couple weeks ago, and I was trying to encourage you in your personal, personal journey when we weren't talking about our corporate religion. Never feel like you're less than or that you have nothing to offer because you're not a big deal like Billy Graham or something. To bear that out, what I'd like to do is I'm going to read from uh, 1 Corinthians 12. 12 through, let me see, 19, I think, in case you want to read along. For as the body is one and has many members, but all members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also in Christ. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. For in fact, the body is not one member, but many. You guys following me so far? If the foot should say, because I am not the hand, I am not of the body. Is it therefore not to be the part of the body? And if the ear should say, because I am not the eye, I am not of the body. Is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where would be the hearing? If the whole were hearing, where would be the smelling? But now God has set the members, each one of them, in the body, just as he pleased. Isn't that reassuring? Just as he pleased. You're a member of Christ's body, and just as he pleased, just as he designed. You might be saying, oh, I'm just a foot. I'm not super complex like the eye or pretty like a smile. If you think that's bad, I'm pretty convinced I'm the planter's wart on that foot. Never use the word just before describing yourself. I'm just me. You're not just you. And that, that rule should apply to every aspect of life, but I'm specifically talking about God's design for you. Never say, I'm just me. God made you on purpose. He made you, and then he redeemed you. Let that wash over you. Let that absorb a little bit. We forget the high value God places on us as individuals. And it's mentioned all throughout the sacred word, how important and valuable you are. And let me remind you, your value can only be measured by what God paid for you. Amen? And remember what God paid for you. So don't, don't ever say, I'm just me. He made you on purpose and he redeemed you on purpose. You are super important to God. You are all familiar with the parable of the lost sheep, right? The shepherd left 99 sheep to find the one that had gone astray. You ever wonder why that story is in Scripture? What's God trying to tell you? He's trying to tell you how incredibly important you are to him. And if we don't get that, it's because the world around us, I think, is always making us feel unimportant or unworthy. Or we just don't, we don't see ourselves how God sees us. It's important that we rem are be reminded how important we are. Usually our moms do that when we're growing up and our dads do that, telling us how much we're loved, right? And they need to say it all the time because if they just said it once in the 18 years we were growing up, that would be kind of strange. <laughs> if we were more uh, like robots, they'd be like, yeah, they already admitted they love me. Why do they need to repeat it? You know, but we are humans. We need to be reminded. We need to be reminded. And that's okay. God meets us where we are and he reminds us. So if you're feeling 
um, devalued or undervalued, read through scripture. God will remind you just how important you are. He left those 99 sheep to get the one that had gone astray. Me, being a businessman, I analyze it and I go, probably write that sheep off. That's bad debt. Why risk what I already have? Does that make sense? It doesn't make financial sense to go after one sheep because while you're gone, something could befall those other sheep. Or that sheep could be dead. I could get hurt going to find that other sheep. And then that in turn would hurt the 99 left because I couldn't care for them. You see what I mean? But God didn't think it like that. He said there was no rationalizing out of it because he loves that one sheep so much. He loves you so much. And you have to remember that. We ha- you have to remember individually how very important you are. God left heaven for you individually. He died for you. He feels that heaven wouldn't be heaven at all without you. Did you know that? How many of you who have children, if one went missing, you can just enjoy yourself in your home? It's not home when someone's missing. Heaven wouldn't be heaven without you, and that's how God feels. He's doing absolutely everything he can to get you back. You are super important to God. And the mission he has given us as individuals and as a religion is super important as well. Help save the lost. Lift people up. Show them God. Be God's hands or his feet. I've just spent some time reminding you how very important and valuable you are. But remember, God feels like that about the people sitting next to you as well or the people driving by, everybody else. So how can we not be as invested and care as much about them as God does? We realize how important we are to God, how much God loves us, that awakens love within us for him. But then if we love him, how can we be content watching the other people who he cares so much for being lost? Does that make sense? Our love only goes so far. It needs to go farther. This is a good acid test, and I tell this to my class all the time. If you're having trouble loving people, that means there's been a break in the communication between you and God. If you meet with God early and often every day, he gives that love to you. So you might be thinking, oh, I must be, I must be defective because I don't feel that love for other people that God tells me I should feel, right? No, God knows you're not like that naturally. He knows your compass is broken. We approach God and we receive from God to give back out. Does that make sense? So approach God. Ask him for that love. Fill your, fill your tank. We can't get through this life without it. You know, the cornerstone of every single pagan and false religion is man's ability to save himself. Whatever they come up with, no matter how elaborate the system of religion or system of worship is, at the very center of it is man's ability to save himself. And that's a falsity. We are broken. Our compasses are broken. We can't change that. Scripture says, who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean thing? It takes a supernatural force outside of us to change us into God's image. So if you're struggling and saying, I can't meet God's standard, it's very, very frustrating. I can't meet God's standard. And you're discouraged. Maybe you're doing it wrong. I saw a child once. He got a Christmas gift. It was a little four by four. Oh, mom and dad, this is great. Get it out. Run, run, pushing it all over, you know. This is great. This is great. He didn't realize until several minutes later, um, you can put batteries in it, and it runs on its own. <laughs> How true is that parable to us? We're trying to do God's work on our own power, so if you're having difficulty and you're feeling insignificant, like, I'm not meeting God's standard. I personally went through that quite a bit, so this is a very personal and um, relevant thing for me to share with you. But we're supposed to be doing these things in God's power, not forcing ourselves to do it. I grew up in a church where I didn't really feel the love of God at all. I, I was browbeaten by pe- plenty of people with their Bibles. You shouldn't do this. You shouldn't do this. And it was very, they'd been baptized in pickle juice, really. They were very sour. God's love was not in them. They were following God out of a sense of obligation. I know I, 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 know I should do this for God, you know. Stop doing that. God says not to do that. Stop doing that. Don't wear jewelry. <laughs> I don't know why I chose that one. <laughs> there was a lot of them. But you see my point. You see my point. If God's love isn't in you, don't try and minister. don't try and do God's job for him if you're not doing it with God's power and God's love because you are just going to damage the you know more damage has been done to the name of God by Christians than any pagan or atheist that's ever lived so if you're saying oh I worship God this is what God tells me to be like and you're going around being a blight on the world around you imagine what that does for God how many people have you met where they said no I, I don't believe in religion I don't believe in 
religion, because look at all the damage it's caused over the years. The Crusades, just to name one. You guys know history, but you see what I mean. So if you don't have the love of God in you, that's okay. You have some work to do. Go to God and get it from God. So what have we learned? We're super important to God, all of us. We need to be God's hands and God's feet because we are his body. You were saying just a moment ago, like, oh, I'm just a foot. Okay, well, I'm going to hold you to that. Get to stepping. That's what feet do. Get to moving. That's what feet are for. Christ is coming, and he wants a huge, huge harvest of souls. You know what's interesting is a lot of Christians believe, and a lot of non-Christians who are from the outside looking in believe that heaven is a reward for us. Do you guys believe that? I think there's an element of reward, of course. But this lifetime that's been given to us to develop who we are is a lifetime that's spent where God fits us to fit in to heaven. It's not an arbitrary reward like you'll see with some other religions, like, oh, you get, you know, all this stuff, and, you know, it's not like that at all. If a sinner, a selfish person with their compass still broken was admitted to heaven, they would be miserable there. They'd be miserable there. Everyone else serving everyone else and being loving to everyone else and giving everyone else first preference, that would answer no chord in their heart because it's not renewed. So heaven is not so much a reward is where we ultimately belong if, if we want to be like Christ. We are fitted for heaven. Your journey begins here. The journey of becoming like Christ is the journey of a lifetime. That's sanctification, amen? We slowly approach God. We receive from God. We change. We become very different. We eat that bread. It gets metabolized. It becomes part of who we are. That's the journey. Now, I've been trying to encourage and inspire you, but there's a small, there's a, bit of a heavy element here. I'm going to read you something from Christ's Object Lessons. Every year, millions upon millions of human souls are passing into eternity unwarned and unsaved. From hour to hour in our varied life, opportunities to reach and save souls are open to us. These opportunities are continually coming and going. God desires us to make the most of them. Days, weeks, and months are passing. We have one day, one week, one month less in which we are to do our work. A few more years at the longest. And the voice which we cannot refuse to answer will be heard saying, give an account for your stewardship. Our lives are not given to us to be idle. They're given to us to develop our characters and to be a blessing. Don't shrink from this enormous task because it's too large. God is not asking you to do what is impossible. Just do what you can do, and his strength will amplify it. Remember the story of the little boy with the loaves and the fishes? You guys remember that story? That's not a parable. It's a real story. Christ said, give to these 5,000 men plus their families bread to eat. And all the disciples looked at him like, what? Um, no. <laughs> what are you trying to say here? That's impossible. But that little boy, he didn't hear it as impossible. He said, let me give you what I can. And he gave him his lunch, which wasn't enough to feed one adult male. But you all remember what happened with that, right? When all was said and done, they, they gathered up way more than they ever needed. Twelve baskets filled. We don't know how big the baskets were. But he gave what he could, and God blessed it, right? So don't feel insignificant. Bring your little bit to the table, and God will bless it and feed 5,000 families. You know the adage, how do you eat an elephant? Do you guys know this one? You ever heard that one? How do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. Amen. Amen. Remember, there's another adage. You might not be able to change the world, but doing something for one person changes their world entirely, right? Don't be overwhelmed and don't be discouraged. Show up and show up for God. Show up for your neighbor and God will work through you. That's all God's asking us to do. So as an organized religion, that is what our function is for. We are to be a blessing. This church is not to be self-serving. It's not to be where you come and you get fed, you go home and you forget about everything else and everybody else. That's not what God's plan was at all. Let's not be like ancient Israel where we keep it all inclusive. We come and we hoard these blessings for ourselves.
we don't want to be the way Karl Marx said it is, where we just show up. It's the opium of the masses. We're just trying to show up so we can dull our conscience, dull the voice of our conscience enough to give us some peace. That's what he was saying. He saw all these people, millions and millions of people, showing up for church every weekend, just like drones, just wandering in. A few hours later, they wander back out. They were just simply dulling the voice of their conscience so they could have a little bit of peace and go back to their lives. So it was a cynical view, of course, but there was some truth to it. You guys see what, see what I'm trying to say? Church, we're not, it's not here to just dull, dull your conscience and satisfy your obligation. Oh, I, I gave God a couple hours. We're good. Get back to sinning. Our church should be where we come together to worship God, to receive instruction, strength, and encouragement. And all these things are to equip us for our mission. Also, we gather together because a team is far more effective than one person. Amen? I put some reminders on the doors as you guys exit. The signs read, you are now entering the mission field. Take that with you as you leave here and remember that. I'll leave those up as long as they, can, as long as they allow me to. Actually, I didn't use masking tapes. So those might be permanent now. <laughs> it was hockey tape. I don't know who had hockey tape here. <laughs> so remember... Show up. Get out there and be a blessing. That, that is our function as individuals and as our religion. That is what our religion is for. Let me, in closing, let me remind you of Matthew 5.16. Christ himself said, Let your light so shine before men that, you may, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Amen? Let's close with prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you again so much for allowing us the honor and privilege to gather in your name to receive from you. We pray that you will help us to grow, to be more effective blessings to the world around us. Give us the tools we need, the strength we need, and give us the love we need. Give us that water that's going to bubble up to everlasting and never runs out, and that water is love. Love for you and love for our fellow men. So much so that we forget about ourselves, because we only have so much time in this life, and it's relatively insignificant. It's enough time for us to get to know you and be a blessing. So we pray that this week and every week until we don't even exist anymore, we will be a blessing to the world around us and an honor to your name. We pray in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. I apologize. I realized I lied to you. I didn't keep it as short as I'd meant to. But if it makes you feel any better, I actually cut about half of it out right in the middle there. I was like, wow, look at that time. Thank you for bearing with me, guys. Happy Sabbath.